And this verse is Psalm 103, verses 4 through 5, and it gives this picture. It says, He redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is restored like the eagles. So you can imagine it. Here's a guy over here. He made bad decisions, made bad choices, wicked, evil choices, and because of that, he went into a pit. So imagine he falls into this pit, and this pit's muddy, it's dirty. And I'm stuck down in this pit. And if nobody helps me, I'm going to die in this pit. God comes along and sees me. And out of his love and compassion, in the Hebrew, that means his loving kindness, his mercy. He sees me. He reaches his hand in, and then he lifts me up and puts me on the other side of the pit. Not only am I now out of the pit, but he cleans me up and he lifts me above where I was before I even fell in the pit. Out of his love, he makes me better than I was before, even though I don't deserve it. I fell into the pit because I did it. It was my fault. That's the whole story of the Bible. Today we're going to see Nehemiah is the same story. In fact, we're at this stage of Israel's falling into the pit. They've been restored. They've been brought back. So if you can open up to Nehemiah 11 and 12, I'm just going to read a few verses to give you a, a taste. There's a lot of names in there. I can't even pronounce half of them, and it, you'd fall asleep. And I want to entertain you. Are you not entertained? Anyhow, so Nehemiah 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people... Settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem. So the people came back to the city, and one out of ten families stayed in the city to help rebuild it, while the other ones went back to their homeland. That's what that means. That's why it says, while well, the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So the people said, basically, thank you for occupying Jerusalem and rebuilding it. Because those who stayed in the city, so you have the wall, but inside the city you still had to build it back up. And they kept repairing temples, buildings. If you've ever been to old Jerusalem, it's a pretty cool place. They had to rebuild it. Verse 3, these are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Some are Israelites, priests, some are Levites, some are temple servants, some are descendants of Solomon's servants. Each on their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin live. So they're all coming back. All of the people are coming back, including the priests, including the Levites. They're all coming back. Look at verse 20 of Nehemiah 11. It says, The rest of the Israelites, with the priests and Levites, were in all the towns of Judah, each on their ancestral property. And that's a big deal, because in the book of Joshua... Way before this, God allotted to different tribes land that was promised to them. They were given that land. When they were taken in captivity, they lost that land, and now they're brought back to that land. That's why verse 20 is saying they've been restored. That's what that means. So then if we go to chapter 12, it talks about the priests and the Levites who return. That's what verse 1 is. Look at verse 27 and 28 of chapter 12. 
At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, so the wall is built, so they want to dedicate it, they want to say thanks to God, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the musics of cymbals, harps, and lares. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, and it talks about the villages. And they, did you know that they actually had one village that was full of musicians, and they brought them to Jerusalem to bring the celebration? Look at verse uh, 43 of that chapter. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children rejoiced, so they were singing too. And the sound of rejoicing in the city of Jerusalem could be heard, they, the idea is that miles away. It reminds me of if you've ever, I used to live in Columbus near the Ohio State Stadium and on Saturday mornings, I lived about five miles from it, you could hear the roar of the crowd. Only one mile to Michigan can you hear it. Anyhow, um, <laughs> it's to wake you up in the back rows, so I say that. I'm just waking you up. And then look at verse 40. Uh, let's see, 7 says, So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed to the daily portions. So what we have, a synopsis of 11 and 12, the title of this is Living Again. Quick synopsis is basically they were restored to their original property. We're going to see how they went into the pit for a long time and they were restored. So they're on this side of the pit. Second thing about Nehemiah is that they had praise teams, organized choirs. Halfway through chapter 12, they had two walls of Jerusalem where one wall, the choir, one choir stood, and on the other wall, the other choir stood, and they sang back and forth. They probably sang, we got spirit, yes we do. We, how about you? We, I don't think they did that. And then the third thing we can say is they just gave. They just gave. They gave to the priests, they gave to the Levites, they gave to the musicians, they gave to the building, and they kept giving, they kept giving, they kept giving. In fact, restoration, praise, and sacrificial giving is always a sign you realize you've been redeemed. That's what it's about. And that's the story. So what these two chapters are recording is the last stage in Israel's history, which is restoration. I've always wondered, though, like, so, so this original verse I gave you here, so this verse, I've always wondered, why do we need the pit? Why do we need the pit? Why does sometimes, why doesn't God just make everything easy? And what we're going to learn today, the pit is strategic. It's strategic. And so we're going to look... Um, I want you to look at this picture. I call this Redemption's Road. So on the left side you have a mountain. That mountain goes down into a dark valley or pit. On the other side is a mountain, but behind that mountain is glory. On that mountain is life. And what I'm going to first do is show you how this happened in the life of Israel. And then I'm going to show how this is your story that Jesus always tells. It's constantly the story. And then I'm going to show you how Israel's example of restoration, thanksgiving, and giving is always the sign somebody's restored. 
So if you can follow along with me, I want you to open up to 1 Kings 10, 6 through 9. 1 Kings 10. I'm going to ask you to use the Bible a little bit today. I do that because I have to, Ken gets mad at me if I don't use the Bible, so we're going to use the Bible. So 1 Kings chapter 10. So Israel is a nation. It started with this guy named Abraham. God picked him out of the whole earth to say, I'm going to choose you, Abraham, and I'm going to start a nation with you to glorify me. In other words, he's going to use Israel as an example of God's goodness and his work. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 tribes. They got into captivity in Egypt. This guy named Moses came to lead him out of Egypt. Brought him to the promised land. They set up the nation in Israel. King David came along and he started conquering all the nations of the world. But since he was a man of blood, he wasn't allowed to build the temple. So along came his son named Solomon. Solomon, during his time as king, they reached, Israel reached, the pinnacle of human glory, which is the first hill. Let me show you, starting in verse 6 to 9. So the queen of Sheba is visiting Solomon, and she heard good things about him, and she said, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom, Solomon, is true. But I didn't believe those things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on a throne in Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So she goes, she sees Solomon's reign, and is like, whoa, this is incredible. But watch what else happens. Go to verse 14. People started bringing gold to Solomon. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, which is about 25 tons of gold. That's a lot of gold. Then it says, large quantity of spices, precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought as in the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So um, if we go to verse 23, now watch what happens. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. So it's kind of like if if. United States showed their weaponry, their army and navy, and walked, you know, went through the streets of D.C. Everybody would be wild. This is a massive, incredibly outfitted army that Solomon has been given with all of these horses. Verse 27, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, 
and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Armenians. So what we have is we have Solomon at the height of human glory. Nobody's ever lived like that in any nation. In fact, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to kind of experiment what human glory is like. So he married all kind of ladies. He had big projects. He had a zoo. He had fruit trees. He had singers. And then he started saying, you know what? All of this human glory, ah, it's kind of empty. Not only is it empty, but it was bad. I want to show you something. Keep your finger in 1 Kings and go to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy is a book given to Israel to say, okay, when you go into promised land, here's what you are to do and not to do. And there's a specific section in Deuteronomy 17 given to the king. Listen to what it says. This is Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. So when you enter the land your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreign over you, one who is not an Israelite. Now listen to this. The king, verse 16. Moreover, must not. What does that word mean, must not? Must not. Are we, here's a question, when we read the Bible, are we to take God at his, at his word? Okay, so the, the king must not what? Oh, he must not acquire a great number of horses for himself. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more horses. For the Lord God has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives. How many wives did Solomon have? Anybody know? 700. About 700. Would you say, so Christiana, would you say 700 is many? <laughs> no. No. I know. Christiana, I'm preaching. <laughs> no, but you're right. So, so this word many, it says he must not take many wives. You know how many, many is in God? Jesus said a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. Any more than that is many. 700 is bad. Like, there's something wrong with you, buddy. So then it says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Watch what else. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So Solomon did everything opposite of what was told. So here's what happens. If you're still in 1 Kings, look at 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11.1 1 said, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. And then look at verse 9. And verse 9 is a subtle verse, but it's a terrifying verse. Here's what it says. The Lord grew angry with Solomon. So from this moment on, they fell down into the valley of death into the pit. The nation Israel from that moment on was divided 
destroyed. They had bad king after bad king after bad king. And so for 486 years, they were in complete rebellion. And they went so low, look at 2 Kings 25. You need to read this, 2 Kings 25. They went to utter abject humiliation. Utter humiliation. Look how they were humiliated. 2 Kings 25, starting in verse 1. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah, in his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works. It's big ramps where all the men could come in and jump over the walls. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there is no food for people to eat. So what happened is all of the troops circled the city and wouldn't let any food in or out, and they went, they starved. The Book of Lamentations said the Jews in Israel were so hungry that they were eating their babies. It was gross. Then you keep reading. It says in verse 4, the city was broken through. The whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls. Verse 5, Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him at the plains of Jericho. All the soldiers were separated from him. The king was captured. They pronounced a sentence on him in verse 6. They killed his sons in verse 7 before his eyes, and then they poked out Zedekiah's eyes, and then they shackled him in chains. And then it talks about basically, verse 10, the whole Babylon army under the command of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem, left it completely desolate. Verse 12, the commander left behind some of the poorest people just to work the vineyards. But if you look at verse 21, Judah went into captivity away from her land. They were utterly humiliated. So the first hill, human glory, look at Solomon. Solomon ignores God's warnings, grows puffed up. God lets Israel enter the pit for 486 years and brings them to the very bottom. Down at the very bottom, it says God's compassion changed. Caused King Cyrus' heart to change. And then they started coming back, and we get to Nehemiah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse 31. It talks about all of the rebellion. That's really what chapter 9 is all about. Chapter 9 is all about the line from human glory to humiliation. You did this, you did this, and we rebelled. You did this, you did this, and we rebelled. We rebelled, we rebelled. And then verse 31, he says, But in your great mercy, God, this is 931, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to the nation or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. They got it. They finally got it. So if you notice, the nation on the first hill, and the nation of Israel on the second hill is not the same people. It's not the same nation. Their heart is completely different. What happened? The valley burnt out their pride. The valley caused them to say, I need help. That's what the pit is all about. The pit reveals mercy. This is what Micah says. Look, why is mercy so important? Because no other God has it. Who is a God like you? 
who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight. You delight to show mercy. There is no other God. Allah's not like this. The fake Buddha, he's really not real. But if you look at the Hare Krishna religion, there's not one merciful, truly merciful God. Only God is. Because it's mercy that wins the heart. It's mercy that changes human behavior. And it's mercy that causes the sinner to praise God. It's only mercy. You could say it like this. God's strength and power and intelligence, it's unmatched. You cannot match God with his strength, his power, and his intelligence. But strength, power, and intelligence don't compel love. They don't compel love. Only mercy compels love. It's the difference between what is called, on one hand, legalistic humiliation, and on the other hand, evangelistic humiliation. This is how theologians describe it. You've probably heard me talk about it, but it's central. Listen real quick. Legalistic humiliation is when the law pounds you to the dust and you realize you are done. But it doesn't have any mercy. So imagine you're a dad. You have a 10-year-old son. And he yells at you. Swears back at you, lifts his little fist and says, I'm not going to do anything you tell me, Dad. So you take the kid by the throat and you power him down and you shove his little head on the ground and you say, yes, you are, or it's going to be worse for you. So the kid gets up and he goes, okay, okay, okay. Question, does the kid like you? Did you win his heart? No. You, you subjected him but he didn't love you. Power, intelligence, look at me. But that's not what compels. You have the, another dad over here whose son does the same thing, and his son says, he says son, I, I want you to obey me. Do what I say because it's the best thing for you. No, I'm going to do my own thing. All right, go do your own thing. Then the son runs off, gets in all kind of trouble. Police come knocking at the door. You go to the jail cell, and the son says, Dad, I'm sorry. It's okay, I love you. Pay him out. He comes home. I think you won his heart. It's evangelistic humiliation. Mercy compels love. That's why he lets us fall into the pit. The pit wakes us up. Jesus told it like this. Listen really close. Luke 10, Luke 18, 10 to 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Pharisee are the rich, religious, smart, religious people. They're the people that say, God, you know, the real religious people. The tax collector won't even say the name God. He doesn't feel worthy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. I'm not a robber, and I'm not an evildoer, an adulterer, even like this tax collector. So he sees himself on top of the mountain. I'm better than everybody else. And that rotten tax collector in the valley, I'm definitely better than him. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me. What's he asking for? Mercy. Kindness. Compassion. 
Jesus says, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who are humble will be exalted. What he means by this, brought to the second mountain. That's what Jesus told. It's all about mercy. Mercy is one of the greatest things you can ever experience. And the way that you experience it is just like Israel did in the book of Nehemiah. The first thing they were restored. God restrained his wrath. He could have kept pounding them. He had every right to. But he restrained and he drew them back. And they were restored. Because God's kind. Jesus says this, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus is kind. Romans 2 says, It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I've always wanted to write a book. I'm thinking about a book title. If Jesus Got Mad would be the title of my book. If Jesus Got Mad. Could you imagine while Jesus was walking on the earth, if he just got ticked off and then just getting mad, he unleashed? So you remember they brought the withered guy, the withered hand? It says he was very mad. Could you imagine if Jesus said, you know what, I'm done with everybody in here who just humiliated him and he just blew on them and they all disintegrated. Because Jesus by the word of his mouth, sustains everything that exists. Or imagine if he's on the, you've probably heard me say this, imagine he's on the cross, he just got done being beaten, thorns put on his head. Could you imagine if a, a, a soldier spit on him one last time and he just said, I've had it. And he wipes the spittle off his face and rips his arms off and he, like Thanos, just went like this. The whole earth could disintegrate. The heavens could. And we would not have a chance at salvation. Instead, he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. His restraint gave us the ability to repent, which brings restoration, the other side of the pit. Second thing about mercy is mercy, just once you realize what you've been saved from, you can't help but praise God. You have to. Reminds me of the movie uh, Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but he was, this guy was wrongly imprisoned for 14 years in the Chateau d'If in France. He's in this horrible torture prison. It's dripping, you know, it's one of those caves that drips on there. And he's angry, angry, and just wants to get out of there. He's in there for 14 years, he finally escapes, jumps into the ocean, swims about a mile and makes it on land. He wakes up, he realizes... Sunny, nice water on him. He wakes up, he goes, I'm free! And he's running up and down in just sheer ecstasy. Those, those who really understand they've been rescued from the pit, they can't help but be thankful people. Just like the chapter 12. They would just, they all praise where you could hear miles away. And then the third thing about mercy is just simply, mercy gives back. I've received grace. I've received kindness. All I can do is give it to other people. I was having a discussion with somebody about abortion. Why I think abortion, there's a lot of reasons why abortion is so wicked. But one of the big reasons to me why abortion is so wicked is because people who are given the chance to live, like life is the greatest gift of God. You're given a chance to live to actually experience this world, 
You feel like you have the right to stop other people from having a chance? Who do you think you are? Well, it's a woman's right to choose. It's a woman's right not to give somebody life that you've been able to taste? That's arrogance. It's arrogance. In the same way, if we've been given everything, should we not be sacrificially giving? That's what they did in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12. They just gave. They couldn't help it because they were restored. This is the story of redemption that's not only, in, not only in Nehemiah, not only through the whole Bible, but it's the one Jesus told all the time. Look at this. This is John 5, 24. I often go to this verse because it's the easiest verse for me to understand salvation. So easy. John 5, 24. And I know people will say, well, why? it's kind of complicated. To me, it's so simple. Here's what it says. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says this in one verse. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So the first mountain is death. Human glory is death. Trying to save myself is death because I'm a sinner. It's in me. I sin because I'm a sinner. However, he sent me, Jesus says, he sent me to die. To go to the pit so you don't have to. Meaning he went to the pit. He took the wrath of God at the cross. And then Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him has eternal life will not be condemned. That's redemption. I fell into the pit because of my sin. Jesus saw me there, took my place, lifted me up, and he went down there, took God's full wrath so I can step out. And on this side, I'm better than I ever was. I'm better than I ever was. Listen to Jesus' reply here. He says, I... It is not the healthy, those on the first hill, those who really are proud of themselves. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I was talking to somebody I dearly love, and they will often you know, say, I, I'm not sure God could ever use me because I'm just not a good Christian. Do you realize how many times I failed? My response is simple. The failure, the failure is the person Jesus is looking for because it is that person who understands mercy the best. The failure is the person Jesus is looking for because it is that person that understands mercy the best. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I was thinking about this story in my own life, and probably the most vivid story of this, some of you, many of you have heard me talk about my dad, some of you haven't, but it's a very simple story. My dad was the most successful human glory I could, person I ever knew. He was a college football player. He was great. Got 
an opportunity to possibly be drafted by, at the time, it was called the Chicago Cardinals, turned into the Chicago Bears. Decided to go become an MP in the Army. Came out, had a large family, became a salesman, and made lots of money. Always won these trips from my mom. They went to Hawaii a couple times. They got to go to, they got to, go to South Carolina. They got to go even to Ireland. You know, it's great. Great trip. Because my dad was successful. He had the opportunity to take this new job. After about five months, he got fired from that job, and at the age of 55, he lost everything. I'll never forget the day. It was like he was at the bottom of the pit, and he said, I don't understand this. I don't get it. Even my mom said, why would God let that happen to you? And he said, Rita, I'm not, I don't know, but I know this. We need to find God again. So they left this nominal church they were going to, went into the Bible and started going to a Bible-believing church. Took him a year to get a job, and the new job he got was nothing compared to the salary he had before. We had, he had to sell his nice house and downsize, I mean down, downsize, just to make it. But what's really interesting is after he went into the pit, I came to Christ, three of my sisters came to Christ, my brother pretty much dedicated his life to Christ. My brother became a missionary. My sister now works in the prisons. My other sister helped build a church. I'm a pastor. And then when my dad died about 16 years ago, I know he's on the other mountain. I know it. Like I'll do funerals where you're always wondering, do you think they made it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. When we did my dad's funeral, I know where my dad is. I'm positive. He tasted mercy, and it changed us. Some of you are in a pit. I don't know why exactly you're in a pit. Some of you are in there from your own choices. Some of you are like, I, I don't know how to get out of here. I'm telling you, God is really good. He's really good. And he will lift you up out of that pit for this reason. So you will say, you're the best. I don't know. First question is, how many of you have accepted Christ? Because when he was down there, when he was down in that pit, he took the full wrath of God, which means he was whipped, he was beaten, he was spit upon for you, because really you deserved it, because you were the one that made those choices that brought you down there. But he loved you enough to take your place. You can escape it by faith. It's amazing. And when you believe, he gives you life. You get to live again. The question is, do you want to live again? He redeemed my life from the pit and he crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercy and he restores my youth like the eagles. Is that true for you?